Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to As a Woman, episode 115, Pelvic Pain with Dr. Sonia Balani. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today talking about a topic that does not get nearly enough attention, and that is pelvic pain. I listen to women every single day talk about how their pain has been disregarded, how they've been told to relax, to drink alcohol, to take medication, and essentially that they just need to deal with it with the message that their pain is not real. And that is destroying trust between medical providers and patients. And it's absolutely false. So I'm very, very honored to bring you this episode on pelvic pain and some of the causes with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Sonia Balani. Sonia completed her Doctor of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine in Richmond. She then had a residency in OBGYN at New York Presbyterian, and she joined the Smith Institute for a fellowship in the urology department under the mentorship of Dr. Robert Moldwin, who is a pioneer in the field of pelvic pain. Her unique and very specialized training allows her to treat patients with both urologic and gynecologic pelvic pain syndromes, which it really encompasses both. Her clinical interests involve treating patients with vulvodynia, pelvic floor dysfunction, interstitial cystitis, vulvar dermatosis, and female sexual dysfunction. As a clinician, I know that she treats patients with compassion and science, and she is just an all-around amazing person, and I'm honored to have her here today. Sonia, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to have you here to talk about the taboo topic of pelvic pain. How'd you get into this field? Oh, it's so interesting. So, you know, we both did our residency in OBGYN, right? And it's such a vast field. Um, And when I was going through it, there was an attending at, at the institution that I trained at who was really big on things like lichen sclerosis, like the whole vulvar dermatosi part of, of gynecology, which is often a niche that's not very well understood. Um, so I worked with him and I noticed a lot of the patients would have bladder-based issues. So they'd say, you know, I'm noticing a lot of itching, but I also go to the bathroom really frequently, or I also have all of these other symptoms. So he said, you know, no one really approaches this from a multidisciplinary angle. Um, So I ended up doing my fellowship in the Department of Urology with Rob Moldwin, who's a specialist in interstitial cystitis. And then I ended up making that, being a partner there for eight or nine years and just focusing on both urological and gynecological causes of pelvic pain. And that's kind of how it happened. So tell me this, let's just dive in. If I have pelvic pain, what, if I came to see you, what would 
we do? What's a general evaluation? What are things I should be aware of? Help me out. Yeah. So uh, my appointments are always pretty long. So they take about an hour to an hour and a half because unfortunately you can't diagnose or treat pelvic pain in a 15 minute appointment. And to be honest, it's part of the reason, right? And it's part of the reason that I ended up leaving academics because it was just a lot of like, you need to see this many patients. And I wanted to be able to really change the game a little bit for it and be able to actually like delve deep into the issues that are happening. Um, So an initial appointment, like I said, is a long appointment, but we sit down and we talk. So first things first, the big thing that I need to know as we're peeling the onion is what is the symptom that brought you in? Because oftentimes it's not just the symptom of I'm having pain. It's I'm having pain, but I also go to the bathroom a lot. But I also have noticed that this has come and gone, so I haven't sought care for it. Or I've also tried this or tried that. So the history is one of the most important parts, you know, because like I tell my patients, as clinicians, we all have the same tools. It's just how you use them. So, you know, we have to just make sure that we're utilizing the tools that we have appropriately with evidence, but then also making sure that we're really tackling every symptom that is bothersome because what we do is a real quality of life issue, you know? And so I think that's why it gets ignored so much because people are like, oh, well, it's not something that's terminal, but that doesn't, that's, you can't look at it like that. Do you know what I mean? Because when it's affecting your quality of life, it can really alter everything, the way that you view all of your life. And that's really why it's so important. Um, Okay. So sorry, I went on a little diet. I, I love it. I love it. I <laughs> resonate so much with it because my patient appointments are 60 minutes and the bulk of it is just talking. And there's so much you can get from a physiologic standpoint based on little clues somebody is telling you in their story if you have the time to ask the right questions and to dive into it. So what you're saying about the pelvic pain realm is very much how I'm trying to dissect in the fertility zone about your periods and little clues to try to figure out what's going on. It's like being a little detective. So I love that, that you said that. Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely like being a little detective. And then also to understanding because, you know, it's funny because some patients might say, you know, I have a lot of pain, but the symptom that bothers me the most is this persistent urgency. So if you tackle almost like peeling the onion, not hearing them, not hearing what the issue is that's actually bothering them more, then I think that you don't establish that, you know, relationship with your patient that I think is really important in in maneuvering these, and I should say navigating these situations. Oh, I was gonna say, I love it because I always ask patients, what's their goal? So there's like the immediate thing that may bring you in to see me, but what are we really trying to achieve big long-term? And I think you're saying the same thing. Maybe your chief complaint's pelvic pain, but what's really impacting you the most and how do we really get to the root of what's causing that problem? So keep going with what an evaluation would have. And then, and then, you know, always delving into things like sex, things like, um, you know, things like, different foods. What are you eating? What are you, what are you doing? What exercises are you doing? So, you know, not only are we just getting a history and physical, but we're also delving into like quality of life aspects because sometimes you don't realize that these actually filter into those different parts of your life. Um, And then, you know, even when we're talking about things like sex, which can almost seem like taboo, we have to get really involved in it. So I always tell patients like, look, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to ask you some really kind of questions that you might be uncomfortable with, but just understand this is an open forum because you really want to know is there pain with initial penetration, deep penetration, you know, how long has this been issue going on for? Is it primary or secondary to try to figure out, like you said, that detective work. 
So after this long history in physical, which can go anywhere, I mean, sometimes we go back into like childhood, like saying, oh, you know, when I was a kid, I had recurrent urinary tract infections, or my mom would tell me I went to the bathroom all the time, or you know what I mean? Like, really kind of got to go back there. Um then, then we go in for the exam. Um, and generally, I mean, now with COVID, I've been seeing patients virtually. It's so interesting how much you can gain out of just a conversation, right? Because like even then, you can kind of elucidate where the biggest, what I call pain generator is coming from, which is essentially what's going on in my brain. You know what I mean? So when I'm seeing a patient, mm-hmm. I'm thinking in my head, okay, is your pain generator coming from the vestibule? Is it coming from the bladder? Is it coming from the pelvic floor? Because oftentimes you want to be able to treat the primary generator first to kind of see the nuances of the situation. Um, And then it also gives you a trajectory with which to move forward with. Um, So, But when we're in the office, the second part of this is an exam. um, And the exam is three parts. So uh, we do what's called a Q-tip test, where I take a feel of the vestibule, like pain mapping to see what's going on. Um, I always tell patients, I'll take the Q-tip and I'll touch the the cotton part to their thigh and I'll say, this is what it feels like, right? If it feels like anything but this, because remember, this can be so nuanced. It might not feel like a sharp pain. It can feel itchy. It can feel um, scratchy, you know, and that all makes a difference in what we're going to be able to do next. Um, then I will, I actually do vaginal colposcopy in the office or uh, vulvoscopy because oftentimes you don't want to miss any of these, what we call vulvar dermatoses. So, you know, I don't want to say, oh, this is definitely vulvodynia or vestibulodynia if the patient has an area of lichen or something that gets missed. Do you know what I mean? And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. 
I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No mind shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. So that's really important. And then we do an exam of the pelvic floor musculature and the bladder. Um, And that's like the whole kind of approach where you're kind of seeing it from all different angles. Um, for example, I'll have patients that come in and say to me, you know, I go to the bathroom 30 times a day. I feel like my stream doesn't start well. I have pain in my bladder and I've been told I have interstitial cystitis and, you know, I, I, nothing helps me. And then we take a feel of their pelvic floor and it's actually coming from the pelvic floor muscles because the bladder contracts, the pelvic floor doesn't fully relax. So now all of their urological symptoms actually have nothing to do with the bladder. You know what I mean? And that's that nuanced approach where they've been where they've been put on all these overactive bladder medications and nothing's worked. Well, we didn't actually get the pain generator and that's why. I love this approach. And I want you to back up for a minute because I majority of people listening to podcasts think pelvic pain and metriosis. And we will dive into endo in a minute. But what are all these other things that are on your different talking about so people can be aware of what is interstitial cystitis? What are all these vulvar domatosis? Yeah, no, I forget. And thank you for for saying that. But yes, and I appreciate that too, because I think that endometriosis has become a term that's so widely used in so many different ways. And people have all these different definitions. You know this better than I do. So many different definitions of it. Um, But endo, first off, is not the only thing that causes pelvic pain. And I think we need to say that from the mountaintops, loud and clear, because the last thing that you want, which I see in my office daily, is someone who undergoes excision surgery, ablation surgery for pelvic pain because of endo and still comes in in pain. Why? Okay. Why? Because most patients with endometriosis also have other pain generators, including the bladder. So so if the pain is coming from the bladder, there's an entity known as interstitial cystitis. Interstitial cystitis is also called bladder pain syndrome. We don't exactly know what causes this, 
but we believe that it's secondary to inflammation inside of the bladder that essentially degrades what's called the gag layer or the glycosaminoglycan layer. When that layer is degraded, think of that layer like a varnish for the bladder. It protects the bladder. So when that layer is degraded, what happens? When you when your bladder fills with urine, you get a lot of pain. So this is the type of patient that comes in that says, uh, I've had recurrent urinary tract infections, but my cultures keep coming back negative. That's, that's weird. Why? But they keep putting me on antibiotics, but the pain doesn't go away with antibiotics. So look at how many issues we have here. Now you have put someone on re recurrent antibiotics, potentially causing multidrug-resistant bacteria in the setting of a negative culture. You know what I mean? And so, so that's interstitial cystitis in the broad term. Um, and then, and then oftentimes it's, there's a lot of foods that can be triggers for patients with IC, which is a big thing. Um, and, and patients with interstitial cystitis often also have a secondary pain generator. So 80% of patients with interstitial cystitis also have what's called pelvic floor dysfunction. And, you know, and it's a great question. And we always say this, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it this chronic kind of discomfort that causes you to clench up and tighten up those pelvic floors? So what, what is pelvic floor dysfunction, right? That's a great kind of segue into this. So pelvic floor dysfunction is when the muscles of the pelvic floor have these taut bands or what we call trigger points, which are areas of muscle knots banding that have things like nitrous oxide and different catecholamines that are inflammatory in nature. So people always think of trigger points in the back. It's the same thing in your pelvic floor. But just like you elucidated, oftentimes this can be a reflex reaction to pain in general, right? Because like people clench their jaws, you can also clench your pelvic floor. So, you know, I, I always think it's an interesting kind of thing where it goes together and always thinking what came first, the chicken or the egg. When they're doing more studies with pelvic floor dysfunction, there's this component, which, you know, and I hate the term, but I'm going to use it here. Um, there's always this component of inflammation that we talk about in all of these different diagnoses. You know what I mean? So we talk about inflammation in terms of interstitial cystitis. We talk about inflammation in endometriosis. We talk about inflammation in pelvic floor dysfunction. So, um, so it's interesting to kind of think about that because we don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, but when you look at the actual top trigger points, they actually do contain inflammatory cytokines in them. So I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I deal with this a lot in the infertility, that inflammation is bad. And everybody, it seems like different cause of what may be inflammatory to their own body. That's part of why diet stuff is different person to person, even though there's some overarching principles. But the inflammation and in endo, the inflammation and in these other things is what your body really doesn't like. Do you have some general approaches for inflammation overall for people? How do you approach that? Um, so it's interesting. So in terms of interstitial cystitis and pelvic floor dysfunction, there is a bioflavonoid that's recently been studied called quercetin. I don't know if you guys use that in the um, in the reproductive endocrinology world, but no, tell me. Yeah, quercetin is a bioflavonoid. Essentially, it occurs in nature. That's what that means, and it's a supplement that you take, and it's actually been studied for patients with pelvic floor dysfunction. Now it's all sold out because guess what? It's being studied for COVID. Um, but essentially, what it does 
is that it decreases inflammatory cytokines. So there was a study that looked at patients who have pelvic floor dysfunction and actually, interestingly enough, men who have prostatitis. Um, And when they took quercetin for about six to eight weeks, the levels of their inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and all that stuff had actually decreased. So I always tell patients, like, it's important to have Main, you know, and I think modern medicine is great at treating. We're really good at interventions, I and mean, we're both surgeons, right? Like we like to fix things, like that's what we do. But the preventative part of it is always the hard part. What's going to prevent the inflammation from occurring? So it's not that quercetin is going to treat that pelvic floor. We still have to do things to treat it, like you know, pelvic floor PT or Botox or trigger point injections. But um, quercetin can help that from kind of recurring at a later level. So so what it does is that it keeps those inflammatory cytokines at bay so that, you know, when we when you actually do get treated, you're not just back the next time coming in with the same symptoms because this stuff is chronic in nature. Um, so it's not like it's like a blip, like a cold, like here's an antibiotic I'll see you next year. It's like generally we have to go over lifestyle modifications and stuff to keep things at bay. I just want to say I love this about you. I already knew this, but it's, multifaceted approach. There is preventing it from coming back and how do you stop things from getting worse? You have to treat what's already there. So very simply, you can't expect that you're going to start eating, you know, plants and suddenly everything's going to go away. What you do is the preventive measures are to prevent things from getting worse or coming back, but you still have to treat the problems that already exist. And I think that we're seeing a new wave of that in medicine. And I'll be really biased by a lot of us who have this approach that there's more to the body than just treating the problem at hand. But that's really how we're trained, though, is treat the problem at hand, right? And so it's very what you're doing, even though it may, somebody may nod their head as they're sitting here and listening. That's not really the standard approach as far as how we've been trained. I mean, it makes sense and there's evidence to support it, but it's really carving out a new path of treatment for, especially for chronic issues like pain. Exactly. No, and I think it's great. And and I'm sure in your world, you have similar, you know, I know they talk a lot about diet with endo and even diet with patients with interstitial cystitis. I always, at least in my world, what I always tell patients is that a trigger for you may not be the same trigger as patient B. Do you know what I mean? So, so saying I'm not going to eat a tomato ever because tomatoes are bad is not necessarily the way to go. You know what I mean? So it's an interesting kind of aspect to it because it's so individualized, like you said. Um, so quercetin is one thing that they've looked at for the anti-inflammatory approach. They've also looked at diet, but like I said, that's super individualized. And it really also depends on the type on what we're talking about, because a diet for things like you know, recurrent yeast is going to be different than a diet for patients with interstitial cystitis or endometriosis. And the data on it, and I'm sure you're, I don't know what you think about this, but I'll be really honest. The data on it is really not so great. Um, And it's not great data because there's a huge selection bias. The people that are going to respond to these studies are the people that are diet sensitive. Do you know what I mean? And so you're kind of like, it's very confounded in my opinion. So it's tough to draw like rules directly for diet from that. Yeah, I think it's really hard. I mean, my world is in endometriosis mostly. And one, we both know that the diagnosis is tough because it's surgical. So what proportion of people and getting enrolled in the study. And two, the outcome can really vary. Is it pain? Is it progression of disease? Which of course requires a secondary surgery. And then when the outcomes that we look at, it does look like 
red meat, for example, is inflammatory and endo and you have worse pain and it looks like worse disease. But then if you just ask about meat in general, that's really murky because some studies include fish, which tend to be anti-inflammatory and some studies separate them out. So I think that we tend to group foods in our brain as one thing or another, where really it's very hard to study each individual food separately to see what they do. So I agree with you. I think, and I always say this when I talk about diet and fertility, is that no nutrition study is really awesome because it's a very hard to control for all the confounders and your outcomes are very interesting. And in, at least in mine, like the reproductive world and probably yours too, a lot of it's subjective. Like is, do you feel better? And then what part of feeling better is all the other stuff you're doing besides your diet changes, right? So it's very, very tough to study. No, absolutely agree. We'll go back to talking about... um the different causes of pelvic pain, because we didn't even talk about vulvar issues or vulvodynia or any of that for people who don't know what they are. So easy. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to kind of separate out vulvar dermatoses for, for from what's called vulvodynia or vestibulodynia. So um, let's break this down. Pain in the vestibule or, you know, and I don't like to say the word vagina because more often than not, that doesn't mean anything. But, you know, if we're just talking in terms of what kind of is known out there, vestibular pain that is not secondary to some type of dermatose, which includes things like lichen sclerosis, where you can have white plaques in the vagina, lichen planus, plasma cell vulvitis. I mean, these are all different diagnoses that can occur in the vaginal area that are actual dermatoses. So it's like going to a dermatologist for eczema on your skin. I mean, that can occur in the vestibule. Um, but as you know, in, in just our OBGYN residency, it's not something that's really focused on because we have so many other things to focus on. So it's part of the nuance of figuring out where vestibular or vaginal pain is coming from. And that's the importance of the vulvoscopy that we discussed prior to that. So if we take a look at the, the vestibule under a microscope and, you know, there's nothing there, but there's a lot of pain with the Q-tip test. So when we're taking a feel around the vestibule, there's a great deal of tenderness, discomfort, itching, scratching. It can be secondary to something known as vulvodynia or vestibulodynia. Now, when you break down vulvodynia or vestibulodynia, you can break it down into different causes, okay? So for someone who presents, you know, 14 years old, unable to put in a tampon, um, tight clothing is really bothersome to her. Um, she hasn't attempted intercourse, but is very nervous because, you know, now she knows that there are so many issues down in her vestibule that cause her pain. She's unable to tolerate um, any type of GYN exam. Um, so that type of a patient, you want to think about something known as neuroproliferative vestibulodynia. Neuroproliferative meaning that the nerves are firing a lot in that area um, because there's different ways to approach this. Do you want to approach it from a topical standpoint? Um, in terms of surgeries, since, you know, that's what we talk about, a vestibulectomy would be one, one um, approach to patients with neuroproliferative vestibulodynia. It wouldn't work for someone with hormonally mediated vestibulodynia or inflammatory vestibulodynia, but neuroproliferative is the one patient population that it would work on, which is a question I get a lot, which is where you actually remove that piece of tissue that is exquisitely tender to down-regulate those nerves to help release that pain. So 
neuroproliferative, um, hormonally mediated. So there's this is a controversial one, but I want to hear your thoughts on this, okay? Because because I think there's so many different ways to approach this. So. Hormonally mediated vestibulodynia can occur in postmenopausal women who um, who um, have undergone menopause, who have a decrease in what's called estrogen and androgens, testosterone in the vestibule, and they can start to have pain. Um, and oftentimes this will present as, you know, I was fine my entire life and now I feel very dry. Um, it can often alter the pH of the vagina. So they can say, you know what, I'm getting all these recurrent yeast infections or recurrent BV and a lot of pain with initial penetration. Um, so, you know, in terms of the general GYN world, um, most people will say, oh, yeah, here's estrace or um, premarin or just like a topical estrogen. But much of the data that has occurred, at least in the sexual health world, shows that there's 70% more androgen receptors in the vestibule than even estrogen. So not saturating that area with a compounded like estradiol testosterone often doesn't give patients the relief that they would get had they had that compounded cream. And then and then taking this a step further, it was actually studied in patients who were on oral birth control pills for over five years. Um, and they found that that was uh, that patients who were on oral birth control pills for over five years could oftentimes have symptoms of hormonally mediated vestibulodynia. This also happened in patients that were on boronolactone for their acne <laughs> because it's, you know, it makes so sense. Right. The common um, connecting factor there is these, you know, lowering of your androgen levels and how that impacts the tissue. And I always tell people that, you know, it depends on what your issue is. I often, of course, don't see pure pelvic pain. So very often my patients that have, you know, really like sexual dysfunction or vulvar pain are really hypoestrogenic, like, you know, hypothalamic disease. That's a very different situation that they're dealing with. But, you know, even in somebody who is ovulating and having their hormone may not be having what they need at the right level of the tissue. So it's such an interesting situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is an interesting situation. And and I'm glad you said that because I will often work with reproductive endocrinologists as patients are trying to conceive, but they're saying, you know what, um, I'm having this issue there, like, and I'll talk to the reproductive endocrinologist. Are you okay with me doing this while you guys are kind of doing your part? And more often than not, they're always like, yes, no, it doesn't, it's not going to affect what I'm doing on my end. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's been good. Okay. So we talked about neuroproliferative, hormonally mediated, and now inflammatory. Okay. So we talked about inflammation as a cause for many of these different syndromes. So oftentimes when inflammation occurs at the level of the vestibule for whatever reason, so oftentimes it's an alteration in the pH that can occur secondary. And some people believe it starts with a dermatitis. Again, treatment would be tailored to choose that inflammation, which can occur, which can kind of be a multitude of things. You can use like different topical medications. Oftentimes, especially in inflammatory mediated vestibulodynia, it can occur in patients who have pelvic floor dysfunction because the contraction of the pelvic floor decreases capillary blood flow to the vestibule. And so oftentimes that increases um, inflammation in the vestibule. So you kind of have to treat both at the same time. So you can see how all of this is related, you know, how it all kind of comes together full circle. 
It's so fascinating to me because it's such a different world, even though our core training is the same, right? Once you dive off into fellowship, you really become the master of your craft and you rely on everybody else who's the master of theirs. So I am not your pelvic pain person. And I just find it so interesting thinking about how your brain is working as you see a patient and what you're ruling out and in and how you're going to treat them. And I think it really does speak to the importance of people finding somebody who is a specialist in your primary issue if you're not getting what you need from your general OBGYN. A generalist just has certain tools at their disposable and they don't have, or most of them, an hour to dive into these things and some of the tools to do some of these exams. That's just not built into how their practice is because they're doing so many different things and they're delivering babies and all this other stuff. So I think that that's important to know as a consumer is that if you're not getting what you need from your doctor, it's okay to find or to ask, is there a specialist I can see in this? How can I get more help? I understand, you know, because oftentimes a generalist will rightfully, they do it for fertility too. They try the, you know, the low hanging fruit. Let's try the easiest thing. See if we can get you where you want to go. Because if that solves your problem, you didn't have to go anywhere else. So it was easy for everybody. Great. But if it doesn't, then you need to go on to somebody else. So helping patients advocate for that is hard though, because people don't even know you exist, right? Like, do you, do, do you find so many people come to see you and they say, I didn't even know there were pelvic pain specialists? Absolutely. And that was a huge reason that I wanted to even start my social media presence. Because I said, you know, there's so many people out there that don't even realize that this is a thing that, that, you know, they could have this specific entity and they're kind of tossed around from physician to physician searching for answers. And then, like you said, everyone's well-intentioned and well-meaning. And that's not that, that we know, but oftentimes they don't have the tools or the resources to really get to the bottom line with these patients. And so it's been, a really important part of my um, of my career is like bringing awareness to this issue because you know it's so underreported, it's so stigmatized, it's so um, and I think that that when people realize oh I'm suffering from this but now I realize so many other people are suffering from it as well it becomes an issue that can be dealt with more easily because you realize how many resources there are out there. Exactly. Just knowing that you're not alone is such a powerful tool in of itself. I want to dive in to endometriosis, kind of shifting gears for a moment. So obviously, I see endometriosis in patients who have, you know, pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, dyspnea. So that's pain with your periods or pain with sex. They often have GI symptoms along with their periods too. And that can vary to be bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation. And often these problems started back when your periods first started, get better sometimes on birth control, sometimes not, but it will present itself again when you're trying to get pregnant. And it's a very issue. And one thing I always tell patients, we have to decide what our goal is right now, because is it fixing your pain or is it treating your fertility? Because those goals are actually in contrast very often at this moment. And surgery has sometimes limited utility in my world depends on what the whole picture is. So I'll say, hey, it sounds like you have endometriosis. Let's complete the full evaluation because surgery may help if we want to get pregnant naturally, if sperm is right and tubes are open and these other factors. But otherwise, time may be our biggest issue and we may need to do IVF for other things. IVF is great because you take eggs and sperm and you put them in the lab, which is non-inflammatory, just like we talked about inflammation being a huge player here. 
But obviously when people come to see you, probably, maybe not all the time, um, there, it's more of a pain versus I want to get pregnant, but maybe you see them both. So tell me your approach to endometriosis. So, and, and that's great. Yes, I absolutely see both, both ends to this. And, and I, like I said before, I'm not an endo specialist. So my job when, I, and especially I'll have endometriosis specialists send me their patients before they operate on them, especially for pain, because what we want to elucidate is that we're not missing a pain generator. And ultimately this patient can undergo, like you said, different goals, right? They can undergo, um, you know, a reception and then say, you know, that that deep pain is a little bit better, but that pain in my vestibule is still there because no one took a look at the, the at the vestibule or no one took a look at the pelvic floor. You know what I mean? So, um, so in my opinion, um, excision surgery for endometriosis for pelvic pain has its utility and has its you know has its um, importance. Obviously, you, you want to be going to like a good surgeon and that kind of thing. But more often than not, I would say 80 to 90 percent of patients have another pain generator that's not often looked at. And that's a really huge reason that they don't see complete pain relief with just surgical excision of their endo. So if you have a patient who's talking to you or somebody who's listening who has terrible pain with endo, and let's use the presumption that they are done with their childbearing and they have really bad pain and they're, you know, consulting with a minimally invasive surgeon or an endo specialist, somebody who's going to take care of their surgery. I would say if pain is your primary outcome, you also need to see a pain specialist to make sure that the plan is comprehensive. I'm going to guess you are going to say yes to that. A hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. And I think like that should be repeated in and of itself because, because so many people look to surgery as a end all be all like a, this is going to fix the entire situation. And I would say for the vast majority of patients, that's not true. Um, and so, so absolutely a hundred percent agree. And I hope everyone realizes that like when you're looking at surgery, any type of surgery for endo, you absolutely for pain and though for pain, I will say that you should absolutely make sure that you have a specialist on hand that is evaluating all other pain generators to ensure that this is the right next step. I think it just goes back to that primary question, you know, what is your goal? And if your goal is pain relief, which is which is a great goal, right? You should not be in chronic pain. You shouldn't have pain with sex and pain with your periods and dread all these things. So that goal is valid. You shouldn't feel ashamed of it by any means, but very rarely is one thing going to fix a chronic issue, right? Maybe it could have if this was day one of your endo, but this problem has been here for a really long time by the time we're dealing with it. And so you need a team. And I would also say you're never wrong to ask. Say you have your endo specialist. Do you work with somebody who specializes in pain so that I can have that aspect or have that extra help on my team. I can have that person because most true endo specialists do have somebody who helps manage pain, correct? 
A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. And I work with a ton of endosurgeons and, you know, what they call the evil twin of endometriosis is interstitial cystitis. And we oftentimes believe that's secondary to inflammation. But so you oftentimes want someone evaluating the bladder or evaluating the pelvic floor because an endometriosis surgeon is a surgeon. And that's their, like you said, that's their specialty. That's their goal. But oftentimes that is not, um, that's not comprehensive enough. And so I I absolutely agree with you. And I, I love that you're, I love that you see this too in your own way, in your own specialty kind of a thing. Do you know what I mean? It's so interesting to me because it's so not, it's not talked about enough. It's not. And I also think that there's some maturity as we practice for a long time to know that one person is unlikely to be able to cure everybody's issues. So I will say, <laughs> It's, it's not a, you know, bad thing that I'm not the person to fix all these things. And I am happy to have other players on my team to help you into this end goal. And I think that that is maybe a more modern approach to medicine. I think there's definitely some older physicians, perhaps, who felt like they needed to take care of every problem or that was the best thing for the patient. And to me, I say, no, the best thing for you is to have these three different people and everybody's an expert at their own little part and you're getting the absolute best, most evidence-based care from different people focusing on a different segment of your problem. What is something Absolutely. What is something you want people to know who have chronic pain? Because we touched on the fact that this is taboo and there's some stigma that goes along with this. A lot of people have never spoken to anybody about sex or their vagina or any of these words before. So what do you want to tell people about that? I want to tell people that it's more common that you, than you think. Um, so so if you are suffering, you're not alone. And, and this is a a entity that I think is very underdiagnosed, that is very stigmatized, but it shouldn't be, okay? I want to also let people know that there are so many things we can do because I feel like one of the biggest misconceptions with chronic pain is that you just have to live in it and that is just your life um, and that is not true. And I can honestly tell you that, you know, 97% of my patients live a normal life regardless of their diagnoses because that's part of are, that's part of any any doctor-patient relationship. We want you to have the life that you deserve, and you can, and you should. And so if you're experiencing any of these symptoms that we kind of discussed today, even if you don't know what's going on, like maybe you're like, I'm not sure, just like, just like you said, seek care because you will be surprised at the tools that we have. Um, and often, oftentimes it's small things, but it can really make a huge difference. Okay. We are running out of time, but I want to shift gears really quickly and ask you one last question. And that is the decision. So I can tell you this personally, the decision to start your own thing, your own practice to switch jobs is one that is very, it's a scary leap. And yet you must be very passionate about it. So what inspired you to venture out on your own with your practice and what would patients expect? And we might as well say, because you're going to get bombarded with it. Do you only see people in your area? Do you see people from all over? Can patients travel to see you? Tell me about your practice. So, you know, I told you before I was in academics for eight or nine years, which I loved because, you know, I think it was great to, to build my research experience, to have all of these other people around that can kind of help build you up and understand all the different causes of pain. But the one part of it that didn't sit right with me was the fact that, you know, in an academic setting, it's often a volume-based practice. So you're asked to see a multitude of patients a day. And I think with pain, 
a lot can get missed if you don't take the time and energy to sit down with someone and even go over things like we said today, like preventative measures, diet, that kind of thing. So I realized I wasn't satisfied in the patient relationships I was having. Like I love them and, and many of my patients followed me out, but, um, but it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And that's where I said, you know what, I have to change this dialogue between a patient and doctor relationship. And I want to be able to give them the care that I think that they deserve. And that's really what kind of made me realize, you know what, I'm going to go off on my own and be able to do this. Um, and it's been great. I mean, I can't, and I, I want to, like, I wish we had more time to talk about like kind of, cause we've, we've talked as friends about this on a different level. Um, but that's been one of the most amazing parts of it. And then seeing people get better, right? Because they're invested in their care. So ultimately, that turnaround time is so much faster and just so much more rewarding, in my opinion. Um, so that's been the best part of this. And um, yes, I see patients from all over. Um, and, and right now, obviously, that's been a good thing because with COVID, I can see patients from anywhere really virtually. Um, and then um, and then anyone's welcome to come to New York should we need to like ever do something like that. And we have tons of patients who do. And my goal in my practice is to get you better. And I always tell patients to get you out. You don't need me forever. I'm just like that voice in your head that kind of helps bring you back when you need it. Um, and that's my, my goal. <laughs> I love that. I have a personal question. Because part to me, when I went through training, when I went through residency and fellowship, the idea of starting my practice was never even on the table. It wasn't even considered when I looked at my, you know, choice of options. And I think it's because nobody talks about it or I didn't have role models who were doing it or the universe told me you can't do that and be a mom. It'll take too much from you. So your kids will suffer. And was this on the table for you, something you thought about, or was it more of this is what I do in order to take care of patients the way that I want? So, yeah, I mean, when I graduated residency and even when I did fellowship, it was never something that I thought about. Like, I was so happy in the Department of Urology. Like, that was it for me. You know what I mean? Like, that was what I had always just thought my life would be. And then when I start, you know, what's interesting is when I started to feel, like I said, when I felt like the appointments were just not long enough and um, I actually told my husband, who's a dentist. And it's interesting because dentists actually go into their line of work wanting to own their own practice. Like, that's just their, their training is different than ours. So he said to me, he's like, so why don't you just change the game a little bit like give people the care that you think that they deserve um and that's kind of how like I even thought about going off on my own but I think and then of course meeting people like you and other people who have done it you know what I mean it gives you this sense of like I can do it too um and I think it was the most important transition I've ever made in my life I'm so proud of you just as a personal friend and as a professional colleague across the country. It's a scary leap, especially when, you know, you have kids and you support them and you've worked so hard to get this professional state. And there's this internal narrative, you know, what if it doesn't work? And what if I have this, you know, I don't know if you took a loan out, we took a loan out. What if I don't have this loan to pay off and all these other pressures. And then there's this other side of it. That's, I believe in me. I believe in what I'm doing. I know I'm good at what I do. And so why do I not want to bet on myself? Right. And so but making that exactly. flip anyway. I'm proud of you. Can you tell Thank us where you. everybody can find you? If they don't follow you on Instagram and all the places, where can people find you? 
So, yeah, um, you can find me on www.pelvicpaindoc.com. That's my website, and that has all links, everything kind of together. And then I'm on Instagram as well as Pelvic Pain Doc. I'm on Facebook as the same thing. And then I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Sonia Bolani. I know that one's a little different. Pelvic Pain Doc was taken for that one. Ooh, so. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to that person. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> Sonia, thank you so much. It's been just such a pleasure. And I think this is a topic that's just not talked about enough. I really appreciate you coming on here to break that stigma and give us some education. Friends, I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Sorry, some of the audio isn't perfect, but the information is so, so good. So we made it work. As always, you can follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Or you can go to the YouTube, Natalie Crawford MD, for lots of fertility-related content. Thank you so much.